right, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come and we listen to your word and we ask that you would give us strength that we might not lose heart. We praise you, Lord, for your spirit which leads us into the truth. And we ask, Father, that we would listen carefully. I ask, Lord, you'd give me strength as I speak your words to your people that I might do so in your strength, relying upon your words and not mine, that hearts might be confronted by your truth and comforted by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you know someone who is particularly good at getting into trouble. Uh, maybe this is a very argumentative person, or maybe it's a young child who's very mischievous. You know, uh, if they're not right there in front of you, you can pretty much guess they're into something. Well, the good news is they're in good company because the Apostle Paul seems to have been quite skilled at getting into trouble. Uh, earlier, John read for us the story of his conversion in Acts chapter 9, and he winds up in the city of Damascus. And it only takes a few days of being in that city, a few days of being a Christian, for Paul to rile up the entire place, so much so that he has to escape by being uh, lowered through a hole in the wall in a basket. So then he goes to Jerusalem, but he's not there very long before the Hellenists are all planning to murder him. And so the disciples pack Paul off to another city. And this becomes sort of a common theme. 
for Paul's ministry. You can almost imagine churches sort of pinning a note on his back when they send him to the next city. Hey, just so you guys know, uh, you're going to want to send him on within a couple weeks or you're pretty much guaranteed a riot or, you know, uh, uh, attempted stoning or something of the like. But how does Paul handle so much trouble? Well, the next portion of Ephesians that we're looking at today helps us understand why suffering doesn't discourage Paul. And this is sort of a unique text because as Paul begins, for this reason, I, Paul, he clearly intends to say something other than what he ends up saying. Okay, so you'll notice there's this little dash at the end of verse 1. If you're looking at the text there, there's a little dash uh, which tells you that he cuts off his sentence right in the middle as if he realizes there's something he wants to explain about how he's just described himself. And he's not going to pick that thought back up until verse 14. If you look at that, you'll see he repeats for this Reason, and then he begins a prayer. So he finally gets back to what he was wanting to talk about when he opened in verse 1. Uh, we'll look at that uh, text next week. But what is it that distracts him? Uh, the key is found in verse 13, uh, where he sort of sums up his whole digression. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. You see, he began verse 1 by saying uh, he's in prison on behalf of you Gentiles, but then concerned that they would be troubled by his suffering. He gives them reasons why they should not lose heart. And so these two verses, verse 1 and 13, they frame the entire text for us, and they show us Paul's deep concern for the Ephesian church. This is a church that loves him very much. In Acts 20, uh, Paul says goodbye to the leaders of the Ephesian church, and he tells them, I'm not going to see you guys again. And uh, the text describes weeping and embracing and kissing. Uh, this church loves Paul, and it is very difficult to watch people you love suffer. In fact, often it's more difficult than suffering yourself. The person whose loved one is suffering is in great danger of bitterness and disbelief. They are in danger of losing their heart. And as people then who live in a world where, you know, the, we watch our loved ones fall apart, we need to hear Paul telling us, don't lose heart. So what are some of the reasons that Paul can make such a bold statement? Don't lose heart. Well, first, he's got a liberating perspective. So that will be my first point, a liberating perspective. Paul's unique perspective shows up right from the beginning. He calls himself a prisoner of the Roman emperor. No, the emperor's not in charge, right? Don't you remember what Paul said earlier? He made it very clear, Ephesians 2.21, who's seated far above all rule and authority and power and every name that can be named in this age and the age to come? Jesus Christ. Now, of course, when Paul reminds the Ephesians that he's a prisoner, they may wonder to themselves, is Jesus really in charge? Uh, wouldn't 
Paul be so much more effective if he were free? But Paul tells them, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The chains of the emperor don't restrain Jesus. They serve him. Do the chains of your life restrain you or serve Jesus? Our perspective deeply influences what we make of our situation. Uh, the person who feels stuck in a situation they don't like, whether we're talking about the mom stuck at home with a bunch of snotty kids or an elderly parent, or the employee who's stuck in a difficult or boring job, or the, the sick person who's stuck in bed. They can view themselves as a prisoner to that situation or a prisoner of Christ whose chains serve his purposes. Their situation hasn't changed, right? But their perspective will deeply affect their experience of that situation. So are you a prisoner of Christ or a prisoner of your troubles? Only one perspective is truly liberating. You see, Paul knows who he is. He's a prisoner of Christ. But more than that, if you jump down to verse 8, he says, He is the least, the very least, excuse me, of all the saints. Uh, he actually says in Greek that he is less than the least. Now, that's not proper grammar. You can't actually do that. But the point is, he doesn't even think he deserves to be called the least of God's servants. He's even less than that. He, he's not just exaggerating. Get into Paul's head for a minute. And I had John read his conversion story to help you guys here. Uh, as he writes these words, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Can you imagine him pausing and just saying to himself, how inconceivable that Saul of Tarsus that rabid hater of Christ, that bigoted despiser of Gentiles who dragged families from their homes in the middle of the night to murder them on the streets, who, who in his lust for Christian blood was so insatiable he went on missions to other cities to seek out more Christians. Perhaps all of that flashes through Paul's mind as he cries out in verse 8, to me, grace was given. Do you ever feel like the least of all the saints? Small, insignificant, not so smart, not so gifted, or all those things, but too selfish, too sin-addicted to make them count. Join with Paul. He's less than the least of God's saints. And friends, you are in a good place. Because when you know that you are less than the least, God's grace becomes marvelous. This is the perspective you need. To me, to me, to me, grace was given. So Paul is liberated by knowing who he is but also by knowing what he's for. 
Sinclair Ferguson notes that it is endemic in our society that people don't know what they're for. Most of the problems we have as Christians would at least begin to be solved if we knew absolutely clearly what we were for. Paul knows what he's for, and that's why he's gripped by this zeal and passion. He's traveling all over the Roman world. He's filled with purpose. The jail cell doesn't take this away from him. Verse 2, he's a steward of God's grace for the Gentiles. Verse 7, he's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a narrow and a wide sense to every person's call, what uh, Ed Clowney refers to as your first name and your last name. And I can't stand up here and tell you your first name, but I can tell you your last name, which is the foundation of your first name. Your last name is Christian. And it means that above all other things you are called to do, you are called to worship. So start with that central priority. And if anything else you are tempted to pursue in this life threatens to take you away from worshiping and enjoying the Lord, it is not what you are for. Along with knowing his calling, Paul knows that what happens to him happens for a reason. There's no randomness to his suffering. It is for the glory of the Gentiles that Paul suffers. He's in prison for their sake. He's specially appointed by God to sacrifice his life for them. Now listen, the reason Paul keeps getting run out of various cities... Uh, and the reason that he ends up here in, in jail in Rome is because of the hatred of the Jews. The Jews hate him because of his message. In fact, before he gets sent to Rome, uh, when he's still in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22, Paul's speaking before all the Jewish leaders, all the people, and he tells them his whole life story. He lays it out before them. And at the very end, he says that God told him he would be sent to the Gentiles. And the text says that up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And from that point on, they go nuts. Uh, you can read the story, Acts 22, the Roman centurion. He has to do all sorts of things just to keep Paul alive and get him out of the city. But the point of all of this is that because Paul knows who he is, he knows what he's for, that he is an instrument of the Lord, everything that occurs to him is part of what he's for. He suffers for something. John Piper describes the history of God's people as this great, ginormous canvas with, with God as the invisible painter taking up his people like paintbrushes. Like Paul, they're small, they're dirty paintbrushes. Somebody forgot to rinse them out. They're crusty. Someone pulled out a bunch of the bristles. But in the hand of the painter, each brushstroke plays a role in this beautiful picture that God is painting. You know, some are, are bright, blazing colors. Some are dark, sad colors. 
But every color, no matter how small, is part of this glorious picture that the Lord is painting. But let's turn now to talk about the message that Paul has, because it is part of his call to us not to lose heart. Don't lose heart, because God's people are given a unifying message. So my second point now, a unifying message. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller argues that perhaps the main fact we can see about things in this life is that they fall apart. Things fall apart. All around us, we see things that should be one falling apart, right? When we see disease and death, we see a body falling apart. When we see war and murder and racism, we see relationships falling apart. When marriages fail, two people who are supposed to be one flesh are falling apart. When churches fracture, believers who are committed to being one body are falling apart. Now, the part of the explosive message of Christianity is that Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, we read this, God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. Where do we see that union? most clearly in this life? Well, Paul tells us that is a mystery that I get to reveal. Verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. For thousands of years, there's been this dividing line through the peoples of the world, and it ran down ethnic lines. The promises of God were for the Jews, not for the Gentiles, not for the rest of the nations. And of course, we love to talk about those exceptions, uh, those little glimpses we get into the mystery where a, a certain Gentile finds their way into the people of God. And, and of course, there are many references throughout the Old Testament in the prophets and in the, in the Psalms and in even the historical books to this inclusion, this future expansion of the people of God to include the nations. But you see, the Jews figured that would be something like them ruling over the nations. They, they can come be our servants. That's okay with us. And this is why Paul's message of Jew-Gentile unification into one body was so infuriating to the Jews. We are members of the same body? This is still a difficult message for people to hear. This means that there is to be a union between all Christians all true Christians around the world from all sorts of ethnicities, social classes, backgrounds, all sorts of spiritual maturities and theological persuasions. And this union is to be thicker even than the bonds of country and language, culture, and family. That doesn't mean your country, your family, your friends don't matter. Of course they do. But only the unity of the church is eternal. So here, Paul says, 
Look at the gift that is given to me. I get to share this with people. This was a secret hidden in the bosom of God for ages. All those years, and now I finally get to break it loose. I get to tell them there's no barrier whatsoever that can keep you from union with Christ church if you submit to Christ as your king. It doesn't matter if you're educated and smart or deaf and dumb. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, what your political views are, what your skin color is, what disabilities you have. It doesn't matter if you're serving a life sentence in prison or you're the president of the United States. The gift of grace is offered to you regardless of those things. For those who know they are one of the least and who weep at the falling apart of all things, that is an incredible message of hope. So do not lose heart as things fall apart. As a member of God's church, you've been gifted an incredible message of grace to a divided world. To divided churches, to divided families, to divided hearts. You have a message of a grace that unifies. And just look at how Paul summarizes this message in verse 8. He says, I get to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Every English translation uses a different word here. Nobody can agree on whether God's, Christ's riches are unsearchable, boundless, unfathomable, untraceable, inexhaustible, inscrutable, or incalculable. But whatever word you want to choose there, what's clear is his riches are infinite. Infinite. So the message given to those of you who are tempted to lose heart is that the Christ who loved you enough to give his life for you has an eternity of riches to unload upon you. Why would you claim anything else as your treasure? Christ is a treasure that cannot be taken away from you and you will find him to be richer and richer every day of the immortal life that awaits you. But I want to talk finally about the church because the church is the central theme of Paul's message here. So my third point, a cosmically central church. A cosmically central church. I know it's a pretty grandiose title for my third point, but it is merited let me just walk you through the flow of what Paul is saying here. It, it is a bit rambly. It's a bit confusing. Remember, the whole thing is sort of a, an unplanned diversion. Uh, but he's building to a point here. So in verses 2 to 3, he introduces this mystery that he's a steward of. He says, I've already written about this briefly. He's probably just referring back to chapter 2, what we looked at last week. Uh, and then in verses 4 to 5, he says, this mystery is a new thing. Other generations, they didn't know about it. There's a progressive nature to God's revelation. He doesn't tell us everything at once. But now, <laughs> it's being revealed 
through God's apostles and prophets. Paul's not the only one with this secret. And then in verse 6, the mystery is the Gentiles are part of Christ's body too. And this union is accomplished through the gospel. Which gospel, Paul says in verse 7, he is a minister of. Verse 8, Paul goes on, to me, the least was given the privilege of preaching not just the gospel, but in a fuller sense, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the message I get to preach. And verse 9, and to illumine for the whole world God's sovereign plan to unite the nations in Christ. Verse 10, so that. Okay, this is key. These words, so that, tells us where this is all headed. So that through Christ's body, finally called here the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be seen. Just go back with me to Piper's illustration of a painting here, right? The canvas is a world, the painter is God, but there's an audience to this painting heavenly beings the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places thousands upon thousands of good angels and fallen angels battling in the heavenly places and watching as God paints this universal canvas in the history of our world his plan verse 9 was hidden it was hidden in God. So the angels don't know the depths of his wisdom either. But as the colors take shape and the little brushstrokes of our lives begin to form a picture, their mouths drop open. Who, who could have imagined such a plan? What is this thing called grace? And you would just give it to them, Lord? How will you do that? Wait, wait, why send your son to that poor family? Are, are you really going to let him die? Lord, let's go save him. Let's send your army. We'll tear him off the cross and crush these rebel humans once and for all. You're letting him die? And all the demons laugh a deep, dark laugh. We got him, they think. The nations will live on in darkness. We've got them. Their smile quickly turns to a shriek, for the wisdom of God is displayed in the foolishness of the cross. Victory is snatched from their hands, and Christ bursts from the grave. Death could not hold him, and from his pierced side flows grace, abundant marvelous grace out to all the people of God from all time. Suddenly, all the Old Testament sacrifices, they make sense. Abraham's blessing has been poured out on all the world. The angels have never seen grace before. They long to look into this thing. No one understands grace. Tell me another religion in the world that understands grace. They understand law. But grace is counterintuitive. It is a mystery that God must reveal to be understood. And to you, to you, to you, Christ's church, grace is given. 
The manifold wisdom of God blazes forth for all the heavenly places to see, and they gasp in wonder at the depth of his mercy and his love, which is shown to them in the gathering of the church. This gathering of all these leasts. Friends, beware of despising the church. She is the cosmically central centerpiece of God's plan. There's a sad tendency among many Christians to think of their belief in a personal or individualistic way. Me and God. Paul would not recognize that type of Christianity. Others have been hurt by the church and have given up on it. But every church is a mixture of purity and error Some are more pure than others. Some have so fallen away that they can no longer be called a true church. But there is no church that is not in need of reform. That's the point of a church. It's a workshop, not a museum. And yet, God has not abandoned his church. Paul is willing to suffer, to see the church brought glory. God is displaying his wisdom to the heavenly beings through the church. Surely if the church is this central to God's purposes, it should be central to our lives as well. My grandiose title is merited. The center of this world's history is not the Napoleonic Empire or Uh, The armies of World War II are the military might of NATO. It's not some powerful mega corporation with their hands and everything around the world. It's not a plague or a pandemic. It's not landing on the moon, colonizing Mars. It's these dirty little paintbrushes across time throughout the world that together form the Church of Christ through which God's wisdom is on display. Not to the world. The world has no eyes to see the church. But those in heaven, they see her beauty and they worship. Maybe you wonder whether anyone sees your suffering. You are on display. You wonder, what is God doing with my life? This is not where I imagined myself being. Lord, I want to paint a different color. I would like to be a slightly larger paintbrush. Hear the Lord saying to you, child, your life is exactly what it needs to be for the angels to draw back and wonder at my wisdom on display. Don't lose heart. Are you a prisoner of yourself or of Christ? One road is oppressive. The other is liberating. To you is given grace. The unsearchable riches of Christ. A liberating perspective and a unifying message as a member of Christ's cosmically central church. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this message, for getting to see uh, how important the church is, Lord. 
we know that we have not deserved it. We are the least, Lord. Maybe we recognize we are less than the least, and that is a good place to be, for to us is given grace. We thank you for that message of grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ, something that the world cannot understand, that we cannot understand without it being a mystery that you reveal to us by your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that we would see the glory of your grace. We would see the liberating perspective that Paul has here. We would come to know the calling of a Christian and accept, Lord, our role as a paintbrush in your hands. We praise you this day. We lift you up and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.